Hey, what's up, psychos? Welcome to another episode of Take Your Pills, Psychopath, the comedy podcast that exploits mental illness for personal profit. What? Trademark. I'm your host, John F. O'Donnell, J. Fod, doing well. Very, very excited for this episode. Um... Because I get to hang out with a dear friend, I will tell you who it is in a moment, but first I want to just check in, let you guys know that I'm doing all right with my mental health. I have a, a move coming up pretty soon. I am moving. I've been subletting a place for a couple months in Brooklyn, but now I have to move, uh, so that is definitely stressful. Am I moving to an ideal situation? No, of course not. It's New York City. I'm a comedian with bipolar disorder. How good could my life possibly be going? I'm moving to a place with, let's see here, uh, it's a little room, but it's cheap, which is cool, and I shouldn't be complaining because it's super hard to find places in New York right now, but I got a small room that's cheap with three other people, and what's that? No common space. Okay, only in New York City would that be acceptable. There is a kitchen, there is a bathroom, but there is no living room, so I'm going to be spending a lot of time in my little room doing podcasts like a crazy person, uh, but you guys make it all worth it because you're here, you're supporting me. A little bit of housekeeping up front, uh, you can can now get a bonus episode of Take Your Pills Psychopath every week if you subscribe to the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash JFOD. So uh, do that. Get behind that paywall, friends. And if you haven't yet, join my newsletter at jfodnews.com. It's the best way to keep in touch with me. And it always gives me a nice little dopamine hit when somebody joins that. But without uh, further ado, I'm so excited to introduce my guest, my dear friend, the one and only Andrea Allen. Hey, Andrea. Hey, what's up, psychopaths? Thanks for having me back. Yeah, for sure. I'm so psyched. I'm so appreciative to have you on. Uh, psychos, so... Andrew was on an episode some time ago where we uh, compared and contrasted my bipolar one disorder with her bipolar two ish mm-hmm. disorder. What's yours officially called? It's a blend. I'm a I'm a blend Ooh, between a bipolar two and cyclothymia. Um, so I guess it's I, I guess it's organized by severity. I guess you would say. Um, uh, so two being the middle ground between one and three. Um, so cyclothymia, I think is one that's less diagnosed because it doesn't present in such a severe way. Like I don't go into psychotic mania or anything like that, but, but I'm also in the two zone, um, as well. I bounce around. Yeah. She's got bipolar 2.5 syndrome. (laughs) Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, so she will, I, I guess, Andrew, you'll have hypomanic episodes that don't cross the threshold into psychosis, yeah. where I will cannonball off a cliff into <laughs> insanity, yeah. and I'll do the backstroke in there yeah. and uh, see what happens uh, until I end up in the bin de lune, <laughs> the loony bin, if you will. You're wearing the pajamas. Wearing the wearing the the pajamas, wearing the socks with the tread on the bottom. Grippy socks. Grippy socks. Yeah, I I like forever before I got a diagnosis. I was always like, why do I relate so much to bipolar people? And I'm like, because I'm on the same frequency. Yeah, and, and for you getting your diagnosis, I believe it was actually a relief. Yeah, it was. It in the sense of like. I'd always had lingering thoughts about it. I'd definitely Googled bipolar and done the quizzes and they've been like 90% match. And I was like, that's not, oh. that's not 100%. Uh, I mean, 
I also like because I have examples in my life of people who have bipolar uh, who are dear friends of mine, yourself included, many people in the comedy community. Uh, I've seen more severe iterations of it. And so I I was always like, well, it's not that severe for me. That's um, the funniest thing to have uh, imposter syndrome for a mental illness. Sure. Well, I guess just in the sense of like, of like, oh, I can't have this diagnosis because I have held down a job forever or like my life hasn't been disrupted in such a massive way by it um, and that I'd coped so well with it that I didn't think that it was me, if that makes sense. Yeah, Um, yeah. But I'm glad I've heard that from other friends of mine that once they've gotten diagnoses that they've felt a sense of relief because it's like, okay, now we know what's going on. Now I can address it, hopefully get some actual relief yeah. uh, from what I've been dealing with and not knowing what's going on. For whatever reason, for me, the time and place of it all, my age, uh, being so young with the diagnosis, 19 years old, it was like... It was not a relief. It was like... No, it was scary back then. It was really scary. Very stigmatized. Yeah, scary stigmatized. I thought it was like like all of my goals in my life were not going to be able to be achieved, all that sort of stuff. And it was a lot of pain, a lot of self-loathing, a lot of self-blame. Like I couldn't say that I have mental illness. I couldn't say that out loud um, for like years without crying. You know what I mean? And yet that being said, and I want to bring this up because maybe this is me being like, oh, this is me being old man mental illness here. Mm -hmm. But uh, for some reason, the term neurodivergent irks me. That irks me too. And I can't exactly put my finger on why. I mean, I think think it's similar. I see this in the queer community a little bit. There's like the old front gays like who are like in their, you know, maybe 40s, 50s, something like that who like got down with some pretty crazy protests and whatever and like did a lot of stuff to really push the needle in terms of like people's rights and in freedoms to be openly gay. Um, so I do feel, and I think this kind of like manifests itself in a lot, in a lot of like waves of new generations of, of, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, oppressed, advocacy or ad, ad, activism or advocacy? Oppressed people. People oppressed who are people. oppressed okay. in 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 whatever way, through their sexuality, through their gender, through their race, through their mental health. There's like a, a an earlier wave who like put boots on the ground and like went through so much. And because these people went through so much, the next generation has an easier time, which is good. That's like what we want, right? That was the goal. But I think that we see people now that are like very casual about their mental illness and can speak so freely about it. And there is kind of this whole like, okay, but you didn't have to fucking like toil and deal with the real stigma. And like, and there's also like, are you, there is an element which is a tough thing to talk about, but it's become this like shiny thing to have mental illness or to speak about mental illness and sometimes you're like are you really struggling with this or are you co-opting it stolen mental illness valor like like kind of i think you're right i think that 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 makes a lot of sense i think it's also too it's like 
for so long destigmatizing the idea, embracing, understanding, destigmatizing the idea of mental illness, being able to say, yeah, I have a mental illness. It doesn't mean I'm a broken person. Right. It doesn't mean that I'm lesser. Yeah. Uh, you know, it means that I'm dealing with this thing and I can still thrive in life. And I think the changing of the language to softening it yeah. to some vagary of of neurodivergent, right. whatever the fuck that means, yeah. you know what I mean? To me... It uh, it's if it, it seems undermining in some sort of way, um, but at the same time, language does matter. Yeah, and I don't think I'm neurodivergent. I think I'm someone who intermittently has experienced mental illness. Yeah, I also think that like there's the glamorizing of it, which like kind of has happened forever in a way like people love to look at mental illness through like a cinematic lens of like look at this struggling artist and the brilliance but then like the tragedy and it's like kind of fetishizing that type of person um so i think neurodivergent is another way of like look at this unique like struggling person and uh and and it makes it seem like it's like this story that's happening instead of like a real person like i i don't don't like being mentally ill in a lot of ways a lot of ways it's really hard and shitty i don't think it's glamorous i would like to be able to sleep regularly i would like to be able to not have big reactions to things that i shouldn't be having big reactions to i would like to not um you know believe something is happening that isn't happening this is not a sexy thing yeah i would like not to have exploded relationships that i care about i would like to not have exploded uh aspects of my life that are hard to claw back and hard yeah. to recover from and just all sorts of types of regret that need to be processed a, yeah. a very difficult road towards self-forgiveness you know what yeah. i mean and it's like, so people are either neurodivergent or they're neurotypical. Is right. That yeah. I think it's, it's, uh, it's just like an extension of like, uh, di uh, diversity language, which again is great. It's, I just think that like anything that garners attention in any capacity in our society can be taken advantage of. And it's again, like I'm treading very lightly here because, then I'm kind of going to a territory of like, are you neurodivergent and prove it? Are, what's are you non-binary? Prove it. Like, I have no skin in that game. I don't care. Um, but yeah, but it's like every comedian calling themselves bisexual on stage, right? Well, seems to be a bit much to me because well, I never saw that before. Yeah, you know? and maybe we're in a world now where like all of the good work being done is allowing openness and. I think that there's a lot more people who are bisexual than we had known. Um, so I, like, I do think there's this yin yang to it of like, we did all this work and we should relish in younger people being able to feel free. That's the world that I want to live in more so than the shitty hidden away, fucked up, repressed world. There is, however, a sort of runoff of it where it's like, it's glorified. Every, it's glorified and everyone can use their identity as a, as social currency on a level and there's which is to me offensive to those who have to live these identity like like I don't come out I'm bisexual you know 
I, I've had sexual relationships with women, but whatever. Like, but I don't call myself a queer comedian because I never had to come out to my parents about it. So I think there's some like, yeah, some. It is interesting to me, and this is getting this is, I'm, this is like tangential, but it is interesting to me how much people's sexual identity has become their comedic identity. You yeah, know? well, just identity has become a pinpoint in a way yeah. that we haven't seen. And I, it's interesting because I feel like uh, maybe it's like a dam opening where all these identities were not being validated. So now they feel this like great rush of acceptance. And that's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Um, but also at the same time, I think you should be funny in addition to have an interesting identity instead of you have an interesting identity and that's why I should pay attention to you. I agree with that. And then just back to the language thing, it's like now people are saying, oh, you shouldn't say crazy. You shouldn't say things are crazy yeah, because that uh, is offensive to people who have uh, neurodiversity. Yeah, You know what I mean? And that, that language shift to me is like, it's, it goes back to George Carlin saying they're just words. You know what yeah. I mean? Like my podcast is called Take Your Pills Psychopath. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, uh, it's like the idea of the idea of the word crazy going by the wayside to me yeah. is just, I don't know. Well, it's also like similar to um, like women taking back the word bitch or black people taking back that word I won't say or you know or people who are like I or find gay great, people taking the word uh, queer, queer yeah exactly like I find great comfort in being like I'm fucking bonkos man like amongst my friends who also struggle yeah. like there is a way that I am not degrading myself with that word yeah. I think a lot of things in our world especially when you're talking about quote unquote triggering or sensitive issues nuance is super important and context is super important and we live in this internet vacuum where nuance and context are never really accounted for so it's like yeah me calling myself a crazy bitch is completely different than some dude i don't know calling me a crazy bitch some person of color saying the n-word is completely different than me say you know what i mean so it's like they are just words and even more so they're words that are their meanings and uh, the feelings associated with them are greatly changed by the person who's saying them and the situation. So yeah, it's also infantilizing to be like, I can't say crazy because that's hurtful to crazy. I'm the crazy person. Let me say it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a glass house. Yeah. 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 It's fun for me. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think you have to look at it with nuance, but like, neurodivergent sounds like something out of some sci-fi movie right you know what i mean yeah that's where i stand what do you think psychos how do you feel about the term neurodivergent email me at takeyourpillspod at gmail.com and let me know yeah um i think if it makes you feel accepted in a community go ahead i'm not mad at it um i do think it is it do think it's being co-opted by people who are trying to have personalities and sorry i said it but I think it's a real thing. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. Any any type of I've been thinking about this so much about all right, here we go. We're talking about colonizing. Okay, so people hate white supremacy and and colonizing, the act of going in and taking something that isn't yours, taking land, taking resources, stealing culture, whatever it may be. Um, and I do notice amongst white people, there is this weird colonizing of like oppression 
and mental health struggles and queer struggles in the sense of like, if you haven't had a hard life, generally speaking, on the spectrum of the hardest life to the easiest life, say you're more so on the easy life side of things, which is great. That's great. I want that. I want everyone to have... That's what we all want. That's what we all want. But say you haven't had a hard life, and so therefore you don't think you have an interesting perspective. But you still want to be famous. But you still want to be famous. (laughs) How tempting to then be like, I can glom on to these new, very sort of amorphous categories, and now I have this narrative. Now I have this struggle, which cannot be quote-unquote fact-checked, cannot be sort of like, you know, there's no way to be like, prove it. It would be very fucked up to say prove it, but I feel like it's like, when you see it, you know what it is. It's just like, okay, this doesn't seem... This is not a substitute for genuine story or genuine personality or genuine talent. It's you colonizing other people's struggles. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like a line that I would say, and this actually seemed to be more, make more sense before the pandemic. Cause it seemed like before the pandemic, the real trend in comedy was everyone would just shit on straight white male sure. uh, comedians yeah. or people. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean, and it was like, Okay, fair enough. Yeah, straight white men deserve to, you know, get, you know, to be f- fucked with and called out on their shit. Sure. But when every comedian is doing it and yeah. it's really, really hacky, you, like you better do it in a really ori- original way. Yeah. So what I would say is like, um, I would be like, you know, thank goodness I have bipolar disorder. Otherwise, I'd just be another faceless <laughs> cis- yeah. cisgender straight white male comedian. Yeah. You know what I mean? My mental illness is the only thing keeping me relevant. Right. And I would say that tongue in cheek, but there was like underpinnings of truth right there compared to what was going on <laughs> yeah. uh, with what you would hear so many comedians talking about. But then it seems like the pandemic happened. Yeah. And it was like. No, now if you're going to do comedy, people don't want to hear any bullshit. They want to really hear about who you are, yeah. and what's going on. So maybe you're right. Maybe some people are kind of like creating some sort of narrative for themselves and trying to give themselves some sort of sense of social of currency. Of course they. I mean, here's the thing though, like we live in this we're in the entertainment business, which is filled with demons. I think this is a phenomenon that's very specific to the the field that we are in, where it's like Amongst, I don't know, accountants, there's no person who's like, here's my queer journey and they get promoted in their job. In our field of work, these types of things are irrelevant right now. People are interested in them. So of course people are going to use it for personal gain because we are filled with a self-interested demon pit. So I'd say yes and no. I think you're absolutely right. That's the case. But then I think there is, I'm thinking of myself personally, I genuinely need to talk about this 100%. That's what I'm saying. You know when it's genuine and you know it's not. Because we're in an industry where it can be used as a way to gain notoriety, shitty people are going to use it to gain notoriety. I'm not saying that that is happening everywhere, but that is obviously happening i agree and, i definitely and, agree and it's disrespectful to those who actually struggle in a wheel in a real way this is not me being like i'm not famous enough for being crazy i'm like hey stop saying you're crazy because i haven't slept for three days and that's not really your place to say yeah. you know yeah but, yeah yeah you know or it's like figure out i guess there is something too there's different preferences for comedy and i guess for me it's like the comedians I like have been 
bashed up by life at least to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah, for sure, yeah. You know, and they've had to push through and figure out how to be funny about that stuff and it's very real. Genuine and, uh, perspective. Yeah. And yeah. It, and it really, it, that's what makes me laugh. Yeah, you know? me too. Um, I think genuineness makes me laugh and genuineness is quite rare. Um, yeah. And so it's not just these people trying to pretend that they're struggling this way and they're not or whatever. I think people are disingenuous on so many levels all the time. It just happens to like manifest itself this way right now because it's the thing of the moment, I guess. But it'll be if it if it becomes cool to be a cis white guy again, then there'll be a million fucking dude bros being. You know what I mean? Like it's always some new thing. So I don't really see that coming back. Around. Can you imagine though? <laughs> that would be wild. And then you have like uh, queer women of color being like, I identify as the. <laughs> Cisgender white I'm a man. guy's girl yeah, really All of a sudden the guy's girl. girls are back again I feel like an axe body spray bro Trapped yeah. in uh, the body of a uh, woman of color It's be- Stranger Things Yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Anyway, you guys, so, so, you know, anyway, comedy is a dumpster fire It um, is, again, again, like I can't stress enough that I don't I'm not being shitty towards people's struggles i'm i'm being shitty towards those co-opting other struggles because i yeah. think that's actually a really disgusting thing it's a do. disgusting thing and it is happening in uh the entertainment industry and in the comedy community for a lot. sure yeah um and it's weird um so that being said how's your mental health been lately? <laughs> i mean good and bad uh let me set the stage a little yeah sure okay so andrea Wonderful person, dear friend, has been there for me in some very important ways. Um, and she uh, had sort of growing up, if it's not fair you say, did not have the best attachment figures. Oh, no. Yeah. Narcissistic father, you know, mother who was sort of enabling that narcissism. Uh, you know, there was a lot of infidelity and lying and manipulation. Some pretty bonkos like health related stuff. I think a lot of like my attachment issues also were like both of my parents were almost dead at certain, like, you know, that's a hyperbolic, but had life threatening illnesses. So beyond being emotionally unavailable, also the threat of them dying definitely created this like very severe attachment issue, abandonment issue, because I wasn't really being like cared for in a lot of ways because of, their illnesses, you yeah, know, which is not necessarily their fault. So, oftentimes, when people have uh, unreliable uh, attachments to caregivers when yeah. they're young, it makes it hard to be in an intimate relationship with. Oh, brother! <laughs> Damn near impossible. Yeah. So, to Andrea's credit, she has really put in the work. Thanks, man. And is doing well and has a great partner right now. Yeah. Can you talk about, if you don't mind opening up to the psychos and talking about what that's like, what some of the major struggles are mm-hmm. and how that process has been for you? Yeah. I mean, but so before my current partner, I had one partner before this that I would say was a good partner. Um, and that was the first partnership I had where the person didn't treat me like shit like that was the first relationship where I had where someone actually cared about me and showed it. Um, that being said, we were quite a bit younger and he wasn't very mature in certain ways. And so like it was an intimate relationship in, in some ways, but it wasn't in other ways in that like it was long distance for a year. And he also had like crippling, you know, suicidal depression. And like we were trying to, 
I was trying to take care of him. He was trying to take care of me. Um, so in, in many ways it was super intimate and in many ways it was like two young people kind of fooling themselves or, or like not able to really give and, and be partners in the way that like real partners are. I, I can say I've never done what I'm doing now, which is like, this is my person, which is scary, very scary. And like, I've looked it's interesting because like you talk about getting a diagnosis at, and it's a relief. It's also like really for months after getting my diagnosis, I did a real rewind over all of my relationships and was like, oh, you are not intimate with people. You've been avoiding being intimate with people. One, because you're terrified of what they're capable of. Um Two, because you are hiding a major part of yourself, like having this sort of, you know, crazy thing within you is a really scary thing to show to a person. Like my my ex before my current boyfriend, he was the first person I would like call in the middle of night and be crying because I like couldn't sleep or I was like terrified or something or I was so depressed that I like didn't know how to handle it. Like that's a really hard thing to show to a person. You you are afraid people are going to go away if they see that. And so I had kind of like sutured off certain parts of myself and I would only get in relationships with people who were as unstable as me because then like this isn't quote unquote real and it's going to like blow up anyways because they're crazy and I'm crazy or it's casual. So I'm not actually asking for real intimacy because I didn't want to do real intimacy because I wasn't, I didn't want to show that part of myself um, because it's very painful to be rejected because of that. And also I have severe abandonment issues, like severe, severe abandonment issues. Um, Number one, the idea of like someone abandoning because I don't have a very stable sense of self. um, And so I can't really like show someone that self because I'm not really sure of it sometimes. Um, it's hard for me to like, it's hard for me to, this is a weird thing and I don't know if anyone relates to this, but it's, it's hard to think of someone loving me, uh, cause I don't really have a great grasp of who I am all the time. So when like someone does something to show that they love me or like I move the needle with another person, I'm shocked by it. Like someone will be like, oh, that upset me. And I'm like, but I don't, doesn't ma- I don't matter. So why would that upset you? Because I don't like matter. Or I'm not really like a real th- fully formed thing. Like I kind of just had this bouncing around people and not really connecting in a way um, to avoid showing. Because I didn't really have a full stable sense of like what I was even showing people. I, I don't know if that That's interesting. makes sense. Um, so it's like your lack of a sense of self and identity equates to some sort of low self-esteem or yeah. lack of self-worth. Co- complete lack of self-worth to the point of like not even really being able to codify my own existence sometimes. Um, so then like there's this other Andrea who gets in relationships who is like fun and doesn't give a fuck and sexually promiscuous, which is also part of bipolar, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um but is very walled off and like that you can interact with that character 
and that character is a safe place to interact. Um, but I will never assert my needs. I will never ask for anything. I will never tell you how I really feel about anything really. Like you're sort of having a relationship with a persona and that's as far as it's ever going to get. Because if I show you the real shit, then you're probably going to leave. And like, that's an impossible pain that I don't, I can't contend with, you know, because I've chronic self-worth. I have identity issues. And I also have, a parent figure that was never there. You know, I had an emotionally very abusive father, um, a narcissist, which that's conditional love. Having a narcissist in your life is conditional love. So it's like, you're just trying to gain this person's approval endlessly and you'll never get it. So it's just kind of like, there's no way to have self esteem in that situation. It's just like a tap dancing constantly, um, hustling to have any sort of worth or value or whatever. So, and on top of that, my dad cheated on my mom, like endlessly. He had multiple different relationships. He was living all these secret lives. And so when they got divorced, I was like, yeah, exactly. This is exactly what people do. Like I have all these fears about what people do because I see it happening. And also in our culture, men mistreat women horrifically. We know that, you know what I mean? Like there's all these like worst fears that women have and they're constantly being reaffirmed. So why would I run into a burning building? You know what I mean? Like, I know I have no skills to deal with it. I know that if someone leaves me, it's going to be devastating. And I also know statistically they probably will. So I just, it was just too painful for me. Wow. So psychos, that is Andrea's baseline. Yeah. Wow. That is Thank you so much for explaining that. I appreciate uh, that. You know, that's, and uh, I just have to say, in my mind, you have so much, uh, so you have so much worth and so much value. Appreciate and that. And really, are such a really a strong person with such a sense of identity or or, or projection of such a sense of uh, identity that I think transcends persona. At this point, I appreciate, and I, I think. Over, I, I, when I was younger, I was faking the funk. I mean, I think that's something really important to distinct to make a distinction between confidence and self worth. I think I'm excellent at projecting confidence because of how little self worth I had for so long. So I was very good at like this larger than life personality that protects me um, because I'm I have very little self worth in relation. So I feel like the bigger the persona, ironically, the smaller the sense of self is like behind closed doors and I I've done cognitive behavioral therapy and I've set boundaries with narcissists and I've done a lot of work and I'm so got sober. Like I'm so grateful for everything that I've done. So I have grounded to more of a middle sort of ground of like, I do have a sense of self and I do struggle a lot with abandonment and self-worth, but I also have these tools and, and I'm, like kind to myself and that I understand how the sausage was made, but it doesn't make things less hysterical or painful sometimes. It's still there. Yes. And I think it'll live there forever. And I think that is, again, that it is a product of those early attachment figures not being reliable. Yeah. Creates something that is, is something that you have to work through throughout the entirety of your life. Well, there's something like really, I went to ACOA, which I think I've talked to you a little bit on your show, but um, it's it's a 12-step program 
and I've got, I've done some 12 step for alcoholism. Um, and I have my positive feelings about my 12 step and I have my negative feelings about it. It's not a perfect thing. It has saved a lot of people's lives. Um, but I went to a 12 step program called ACOA, which is adult children of alcoholics, but it's not necessarily a group that's just for people who have parents who have, you know, substance abuse issues. It's like abusive households, you know, uh, neglectful parents, hyper-religious parents, like any household where there's dysfunction, which is like most households. Yeah. Um, it's a group to sort of work through the results of having a dysfunctional home. And one of the things that was like majorly impactful for me was uh, the idea that when you're a kid and you're a child, you, you know, you're the most vulnerable you'll be. You, you require care from adults like emotionally to feed you, to close you, whatever. You, you cannot stand on your own. And you have a parent that is emotionally unable to love or give you like the nurturing that you need. That's a really scary like abstract concept. A child's brain can't really contend with that because it's frightening. Like I need you more than anything in the world and you can't give me what I need. That's like, that's even something like an adult can't really fully face in a lot of ways. So you develop all these coping mechanisms in order to, to rectify that. So a lot of the times you'll go like, it's not, my, it's not that my parent doesn't love me. It's that I can do X, Y, Z, and then then they'll be better to love me, or I'll do this, or I'll be really good in school, or you know, like if my mom is drunk, I'll go get her, you know, water, or I'll. You figure out all these ways to like sort of triangulate around a person who's not well, yeah, to make yourself feel safe. Um, but then th- this coping mechanism helps you build realities that are not true. So like when people are like, why do women stay with abusive men? It's because they're used to being abused and their brain goes into this whole rigmarole of like, he does love me, but it's this. And if I do this, it's going to be that and blah, blah, blah. That's how they cope because that's the situation that they grew up in. But that's not the situation you need to be in now. But you're that's how you know love works. That's how you know relationships work. So like you have this great little contraption that you've built these bells and whistles to make a person who doesn't love you make it feel like it is love, but it's love in a different way, but it's not, but that's just, you know, that is how you survive. Yeah. So I think like I was surviving a lot in that way and that's not, you don't have to live like that. No, you don't. But wow, that's like to have that insight now to understand that. Oh, blew my mind got to be a uh, breath of fresh air to put it lightly. I mean, it's like you go through like a revisionist history of all your interactions and you're like, Oh, that I was doing that there, you know, like you just look at everything in a vacuum of the dynamics that you were trying to recreate. And you're like, of course I would run right into the hands of an emotionally unavailable person because that's what I knew to be love. What did you do to go through that process to gain that insight and self-knowledge and to start changing those pathways? Um, so I did the 12 steps with ACOA. So that was a huge thing. One of the things that really stuck out to me was you, they had you like build out your family tree and they had phrases to describe people. 
this is what's also really humbling about this stuff is that like you think that your dysfunction is unique when really like dysfunction is so common and you can kind of just swap in different words for different types of scenarios, you know? So like it would be like, what's your mom? And then there's like a group of phrases that you can pick from. And one of them was the kitchen's always clean. Um, And I was like, oh yeah, like, that's that's a way that a person copes. They're cleaning everything. Everything's under control. They're planning everything. They're micromanaging everyone around them. Like that's one type of personality that's trying to cope. And, and that's, that's something you would do with the incessant cleaning. Oh my God, yeah. Um, so that's that. And then it's like, what's your dad? And there was like, what was it? Like, uh, like women love this guy or something like that. There's these phrases that they've built over the years that really like encapsulate different types of, dysfunctional personalities and so you start to take these phrases and fill in your family tree and then you're like oh my god now look at all my boyfriends since then or girlfriends since then they're just like different versions of all these people that were around me that like you know so I'm just recreating these dynamics with different versions of figures in my life and then it becomes abundantly clear like oh okay I think that this is love and connection and on some level it may be, but it's not couched in anything functional or that, that that serves me. Um, but to get, to get out of a relationship to, to have the power and strength to be like, this relationship doesn't serve me means you have to have the confidence to walk away. And that is fucking massive. That took me years. Like, years to even advocate for my needs like to to say something upset me with my first partner days of work up do you know what i mean and i would try to find ways to like say other things that upset me or pretend i wasn't upset like now when something upsets me i immediately hide it like my my instinct is to immediately hide things um because that's what was done in my household so I'll immediately hide it and then I'll stop and I'll be like, don't hide it. Go talk about it. And like the idea, I remember my current partner in his last relationship, um, there was infidelity. And so the woman that he was with was very anxious when he was around other women that he worked with or whatever. So he would like text her like I'm with blah, blah, blah. I don't like find them attractive. Like, you know, he would like reassure her. So he was doing that with me being like, I'm a work thing. Like I'm this woman's there. Don't worry. Like I'm not whatever. And it would like light up my fucking nervous system. Like, why are you telling me? I feel like you're getting ahead of this. Like, what are you fucking? Oh my God. Like stop doing this. Yeah. Like thou protesteth too much. A hundred percent. And so I remember sending a text and I remember like writing it and like rewriting it being like, Hey, you don't need to tell me about like if you're attracted or not attracted to, I understand you're trying to be considerate. I am confident in our relationship. Even if you're with a woman that you're attracted to, I trust you to behave, you know, respectfully and I don't need to hear about it. And like I sent that text and then I went like I biked around for like hours and was like, you know, and then he didn't respond immediately because I was doing something and I'm like, Oh my God, you're asking too much. You're blah, blah, blah. Like, the whole wheel of like, you can't do this and just hide it. And it's better just hide. It was like going and I'm like, no, but that's like, it takes a 
huge effort to have the confidence to even say something like that. Meanwhile, you were responding completely appropriately, completely yeah, honestly. 100%. So it's for you, it's like every time you have to express how you feel and deal with some version of confrontation, it's also like an exposure therapy exercise it's huge. at the same exact it's fucking time. It's insanely uncomfortable. Like I hate doing it. I will... I force myself to do it now because I want to be in a relationship where I'm fully represented for who I am. Um, it feels I have panic. I think they're leaving. That's what it comes. A lot of it comes down to that is that I feel like they're going to leave. Like if I ask for anything, they're going to leave. There's this feeling of they always leave because, you know, my dad wasn't really there it physically, really emotionally, certainly not. So the idea of like advocating for yourself is potentially opening the door for someone to leave. And that feeling feels so real. My limbic system is lit up. I'm panicking. I have racing thoughts. I can't calm down. I'm running scenarios in my head about, you know, him cheating, him seeing that and being like, fuck this. You know, even sometimes when I don't hear from him when I think I should, I am then fully imagining a scenario in which he's lying to me. Like specifically when we started dating me and my current partner, I would be laying in bed next to him and he would be cuddling me and I would be daydreaming or I would have nightmares that he was cheating on me. While I was sitting with him, I would think that he was like lying about being attracted to me. Um, I, even with him validating and being there and caring about me, I still have trouble believing he cares about me, even though he shows me in every way. I still think that the other shoe is going to drop. And it, it sometimes it gets so bad that I want to break up with him, you know, especially early on, I would comfort myself with the idea of like, you can just break up with him. You just, you'll just break up with him. And it's not about him. It's about like not wanting to be in this, this constant state of panic, this constant state of exposure, uh, this constant, you know, possible abandonment. And the more serious the relationship becomes, the more severe the abandonment would be. Like, if I'm fucking around with all these fuck boys, whatever, they're like, I don't really care about these people. I know I wasn't going to date them in any serious capacity. So my feelings will be hurt, but then I'll go fuck some other idiot and restore my equilibrium that way but if it's like someone you love then it's like someone who loved you and saw you for who you were went nah yeah socks so this is still a struggle it's gotten a lot better recently but it was so fucked up for maybe six months it was so fucked up i mean i know we would talk about the relationship we would talk on the phone about the relationship as, as it was progressing yeah and i would just constantly tell you how how proud i am of oh, you thank you you know for the progress that you're making and just realizing that you deserve something like this you absolutely do i appreciate that i mean you i know i think that is a a big part of it for me is like why get better if i can't then live a full life you know what i mean this is like I, there's no way i would have been able to try to be in a, a you know good relationship which again also this relationship could fail and that's okay um but i have worked so much on myself 
and tried to build up my self-esteem and have this whole toolkit. And, you know, I take bipolar medicine now and I'm acutely aware of my bipolar disorder and how that relates to everyone. You know what I mean? Like I've, I've built up all these things. I would like to be able to share a life with a person. And I don't think I could have done that in any functional or healthy way had I not laid all this groundwork. But it's infuriating that I'm on like when I see people who are like very carefree and have like secure attachment styles, I'm like, God damn it. That seems so nice. Yeah. You're not up all night fucking having having flashbacks of all the worst feelings you ever had or or you're not creating scenarios in your brain where your partner's laughing and humiliating you like I, I yeah it sounds so, it sounds really draining it's tiring you know? yeah really exhausting yeah um can you talk about uh your toolbox and what's in it sure um okay so i mean one of my this actually lizzie cassidy past guest of yeah. your show psychos lizzie was just on talking about uh addiction and we compared and contrasted times in the psych war yeah. check out that episode lizzie's very funny and uh, a great friend of mine um and i think i think um i think it's worth saying like i i may have a difference i have my own set of circumstances for makes for what makes me who i am um but i think that this is also a woman thing. I think uh, women are kind of viewed as our value is to be attached to a man. And so I think in in a society where that's supposed to be like your core value, that builds a situation where so much emotional energy is being put on being able to do that. So I understand this is maybe more severe for me. um, But I think as a general rule, men are pretty absent and this creates a situation where women are often often have these feelings. So Lizzie has these feelings too for different reasons in different ways, but it definitely is a female thing. So often when I'm like spiraling out, uh, I'm like, he hasn't texted me or whatever, this type of thing, or he said this thing or he did this thing or uh, is he going to cheat? I mean, him having infidelity in a past relationship was, is really difficult for me. Um, she goes like, okay, every time you think in this moment, it feels real because it does feel real. It feels as real as we're having conversation right now. In my mind, when I'm having these fears, I genuinely think he's like in a hotel room fucking someone or he's planning on how to break up with me or whatever. Lizzie just goes, every time it's not real, like a day later when you realize it's not real, how silly do you feel? You know, and it's not to to denigrate yourself or anything like that, but like just remember that you've run this simulation so many times and every single time it's not been what you think and you've been like, how silly that I thought that because that's not like, I, I like to go like, you're not going to feel this way forever because I think once you start to feel that anxiety about like, I'm going to be stuck in this forever and you know, this person is going to do this horrible thing to be like, you're not going to feel this in in a few hours or tomorrow and you're going to get out of this. This isn't like, you know, these feelings feel very real, but they're not grounded in any reality. And let's take a look at the evidence of all the past interactions, you know? Um, so you've been able to cultivate that insight. Yeah. And I, you know, sometimes it's harder than others to deescalate. Sometimes I'm panicking so much that I can't calm down. Um, another thing that I, 
I guess I've, I've sort of done through building up my self worth and like building up self worth, by the way, is not about like gaining, like being successful in life. It's about like doing things for yourself. I think people think self worth is like once you get that cool job or you're attractive in a certain way or whatever. Yeah. I've been actively building down my self worth. <laughs> Uh, in order to cope with the reality of my life. <laughs> Love funny. that for you. That's funny. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> building self-worth is about like putting a boundary up for yourself so that you don't have to do something that you don't want or buying yourself a fancy coffee when you're feeling bad or taking the time to do an activity that makes you feel good. It's like giving love to yourself as if it's another person, you know? Um, so, and like, tr- and trying to be like, these are the things that I like about myself, making lists, doing affirmations. These things feel like silly and dorky, but they have a cumulative effect over time. So there's a, there is a version of myself that I can grasp onto and I do like that person. So when I feel like they're going to go away or they're going to abandon me or whatever, I go, even if they do, you're still great. You still have a great life. You know, I go look at everything that you have. Look at all the relationships that you've cultivated. Look how much love you have in your life. Like I try to move the focus away from this person is what grounds me to being a real, being a functioning person. And I go, you're the person who's like there for yourself. It's you, not this other person. So I also have like created loving parent models in my mind and their characters in my brain. And I go into sort of like scenarios where I interact with these characters and that like calms me down, like self-parenting. That's interesting. Yeah, it's really like relieving in a way. Um, You kind of like create a place where you would go and create what you would, and this feels shitty towards my parents. It genuinely is not meant to be, but to create like the best version of what a parent would be to you. And so you kind of build that character um, like me specifically, like for a loving dad, I think about the men in my life who are role models who I've really liked or I view as like good fathers and I've kind of created like a Frankenstein of that and I go interact with that character as myself and I have conversations with, and it sounds crazy, um, but it's like a very safe space in my mind where I'm, I've, I am insulated and can feel cared for. Wow. Um, Have, uh, is that something that, is that a, a therapy technique that you learned or is that something of your own volition that you... It's a therapy technique. Um, it's called reparenting. Oh, so I've, never, I've not heard of this. Well, it's, yeah, it's a tw- it's part of 12 step is, is reparenting, um, you know, accepting your parents for who they are and loving them and forgiving them and then also creating a better parent within yourself. I mean, there's a lot of resentment on that in that like oh great now i have to create this fake parent for myself but i think it's a it's a great gift to like have that sort of toolbox um so it's 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 very abstract to be like i create fake parents in my mind but like mine is this is dorky but um mine is like an uh a, uh the dad is like this guy who's like a professional journalist and you know oh, you give him a job oh yeah he's got a job he's got a whole thing 
Um, you know, he's got like a, a cool beard, you know, he's like more of a mountain man type guy. Oh, an outdoorsman journalist. An outdoorsman journalist. I'm just like trying to find a guy I want to fuck. Um, <laughs> you know, he lives in a cabin like, you know, out near like where um, my parent, my mom used to live, you know, and I go there and he like says hello and, you know, do you want a cup of tea? We sit by the fire, we talk, you know what I mean? Like I have this nourishing imagery of a person who I would go to as a parent. And so like, I'm going to that in my brain to like calm myself down. It's just me calming myself down, you know, but to create like a figure like that is it's helpful. It helps to, you know, have a spot where you can go to and be like, Oh, I'm doing this now. Wow. That is so, so interesting. Yeah. Um, that's cool. So yeah, you are, you're putting in the work, you're building the tools in the toolbox yeah. and, and, and you're getting to see, you know, I know it's still a struggle, but you're getting to see positive uh, payoff. I am. And the longer I know my current partner, Dan, um, he's a person I think this is a really good thing to look for if you have trouble picking stable partners is follow the actions and not the words because you are you can take the words and spin them. You've been given, as we talked about, the, the coping mechanism that you have is you can spin any narrative despite the facts being completely not contending with what you're doing in your mind. So stick to people who do what they say and say what they do. You know, like Dan has over and over again said he would do something and then did it. He never lets me down. I mean, he lets me down the normal amount that a human being would let someone down. I let him down, but like he doesn't lie in any serious ways. He, he always shows up. Um, he listens. He's really listening, you know, like, and another slow burn of our relationship has been me going and spending time with him when I'm not feeling mentally well. I mean, I, I wonder, like, I'm sure that's something that you've had in your relationships where it's like, if I'm having a depressive, it's more so when I'm feeling depressive, I really don't want to be around someone. Oh, it's, it's so hard to be around it's people. Em- I feel embarrassed by it. I feel shame. I can't. I just feel like such a, like a husk or shell of myself. Yeah. I, I feel like my personality is just totally flat. Yeah. Uh, and I feel feel almost like a lack of ability to speak in any sort of eloquent fashion. Yeah. I don't want to be around anybody. I don't want to be around anybody. I also get, and I don't know if this is the case with you, I get really, I have outbursts of like anger um, and I have really bad thoughts about people that are not based in, this also happens when I'm tired. Whenever I'm tired, this is just, I don't know if people have bipolar or insomnia or whatever it may be. I have a just mantra because I know the whole day I'm going to have like really bad, mean, awful thoughts. I just go like, it's a tired day. No thought during the tired day is going to be rational. So like pay no mind to it. You know, like, like I'll have like, he'll do something that like might annoy me and then I'll, I'll think something really nasty about him that I don't even think really, but I'll just be like, this is a tired thought. This is not a real thought. But that's the thing. I don't want to freak out in front of him. I don't want to say something shitty. I don't want to fly off the handle at him, which I have a few times. Um, but I, but that's part of who I am. So I have to like slowly expose him to these less than ideal versions of myself. But what's wonderful about him is that he's he's very even keel as a person. 
and he's very like not scared that's a huge thing for me and i i imagine it might be something for you whereas like i was having a really hard time and he said something that triggered me um and i got really scared like like feeling unsafe feeling like i didn't know who that he was who this person was and so i started crying and i'm like i'm really scared right now i feel like i i i don't like feel comfortable in my surroundings i'm panicking and i'm like crying in his bed that's like so humiliating to me to have to do that in front of someone else but he just like held me listened to me went and like made me dinner and afterwards i'm like did that like scare you and he was like no He's like, you told me you were scared. You had to like cry. I understand that you're dealing with something and you know, I'm not frightened by that. Yeah. So you're, so you're pushing yourself to be around him when you're not at your best in your perspective. Yeah. I'll tell you something that of you bringing this up and dynamics of relationship and being around people at your best and stuff like that. It's made me think of something that I, I don't think I've addressed a lot that I think is actually hard to talk about. Is that like, I don't talk publicly much about, uh, or at all really about my last major relationship. Um, in part because I was asked not to, so I'm not going to talk about it in any specific way. But what I will say is I think I am traumatized by how much I hurt somebody sure. that I uh, cared about so much. Yeah. To the point where it's like, now I'll, if in the periphery, if um, if someone's into me or something like that, maybe I'll sort of like half-ass kind of pursue it. Yeah. But I'm not putting a lot of energy towards meeting somebody because of like a fear yeah. of hurting somebody else. Well, and that makes me feel that makes me feel sad to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really huge barrier to getting close to people. And and that's another thing that I feel is that I don't get to have love and connection in life, you know what I mean, or I have this big monster I have to traverse around in order yeah, to like I don't deserve that. I know how kind I am to people. Of course. Like, um, so that makes me, that makes me sad that, um, you know, that this illness that I've had to deal with has left that sort of fallout. Yeah. Uh, And I am sorry that you went through that. And I can't say I don't have similar feelings about the implication of becoming truly intimate with a person that's a huge the huge part of it is causing pain or having them see me as i really am which is not something i'm super entirely comfortable with and i'm doing it on like micro levels right now you know but every time i have like an outburst or whatever i'm like embarrassed right away afterwards i think he's gonna leave you know I also don't feel like I can, if we have a fight, I worry that I can't like advocate for reality because I have a mood disorder. So I, sometimes my moods are not grounded in what's happening. I mean, something that's nice, he did have a bipolar partner before. Um, so he's very good at like 
traversing with this type, these types of situations, um, he will, and not in a shitty way, sometimes I'll have a legitimate gripe with him and I will be in the right. I'm not saying I'm constantly in the wrong. I'm not. Um, I also take my meds and go to therapy and try to do all the work on my end to try to make sure that I'm a good partner, but I'm not a perfect person and this is part of who I am. Um, but sometimes I will fly up the handle at him. That's like too big of a word, but whatever we'll use. Sometimes I'll get irritated about something and he'll go like, I don't think that's fair. Like this is X, Y, Z. And then immediately I'll go, okay. And then I'll be able to like, you know, kind of sit with it a little bit and then see his perspective. And so I am able to go like, this is a fight or I'm irritated for this reason. And maybe that's, I, he can ground me a little bit and I can admit that maybe I'm having a bigger reaction without judgment, you know? So that's nice. It's nice that he ca- like has the confidence to like call me my shit is too severe of a word, but like work through a feeling with me. But then also there are times when I'm totally fucking in the right and he will admit that too. So like that's a nice thing of a partner to be able to traverse these things with me and sometimes be like, hey, I don't think that's accurate. Yeah. Or also, hey, that is accurate, and I'm sorry. You know, so he's yeah. really wonderful in that way. That's cool. That's cool. And it's very, yeah. I mean, everybody deserves it. Everybody deserves, well, maybe not everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I have to, uh, I have to figure out, how to forgive myself for this shit, you know, because I know that I've been forgiven for it. Yeah. I, and I have forgiven myself. I have, but I guess not to the point where I'm, I don't have some sort of lingering fear that I might hurt somebody else. And it's keeping me from pursuing a relationship and, I've known that, but I haven't really eloquated it yeah. um, too much because I don't want to think that it's true, but I think that it is. I mean, it's also like give yourself time too. You know what I mean? I also think people hurt one another. That's just part of the game of of interacting with another person. Yeah. You know, I also think you take great care to not hurt people and sometimes it's out of your control. So I think that you have to give yourself that grace. And also there's people who don't struggle with mental illness who hurt people horribly, you know? So I think like you're not this monster by any means, you're a person. Um, but I think also giving space before, like like I said, I, I've not engaged in, I'm 33 years old. This is the first time I've ever been in what I would say is an actual relationship. So like, I'm very familiar with the like hiding from these things. I'm also familiar with the idea that sometimes it's not the time. Sometimes you're not at your best. Sometimes you don't have the emotional bandwidth to give what it would take to be in a relationship. Like I said, before I got in this relationship, I was like, you're going to try to be in a relationship and you're not going to bullshit around and you're going to try. But that when I told my therapist I wanted to pursue that, she's like, this is going to be really hard for you. She's like, I'm not going to, like discourage like I'm very excited for you but this is going to be difficult and this is going to bring up shit that you have not been wanting to deal with and you're moving way out of your comfort zone 
you know, I had built a little world for myself. I work for myself, you know, um, I'm a comedian. So I have one side of conversations with people as audience members where they adore me and laugh at me. You know, I've built like yeah. a world and I have, and I have a wonderful life. I've built a world of people who understand me and love me and people whose struggles are similar to mine. So we can empathize and be ourselves with one another. But I created a little vacuum where like, you know, it's very safe, but there's not a huge amount of risk when it comes to like interpersonal relationships. So it's a huge risk, a worthwhile one, I think, but I completely understand your fears and your like trauma around it. That makes total sense. Yeah. I think it's only until relatively recently I've looked at through it, looked at it through the lens of it being trauma for me. Of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. never really thought about it like that, to be honest. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. But uh, you know that is the sign of a good podcast episode if I get to come to a realization. Yeah. My own trauma, Got thanks it. to Andrea. I mean, I started going to trauma therapy because of this. Um, because, uh, you know, all the shit on my own, I've spent years, I've been in therapy for like seven, eight years, something like that. When I started getting, when I got sober at 25, I started going to therapy shortly afterwards. And um, this relationship has kicked up all this anxiety and like panic and, you know, just really difficult feelings. And I was telling my therapist that I'm like having nightmares um, and I'm, I'm getting myself into holes of panic that I can't get out of. And she was like, yeah, you, I think that you have PTSD. And I, I hate using that word because it's, it's, it's like attributed to, you know, war vets and all these things. And I'm not comparing my struggle to that at all. But I think PTSD is a lot more common than we think it is. And there's been like a recently within the, you know, within our community and the community at large, I think we've talked more openly about PTSD and we're kind of getting more comfortable with it and understanding that it's not just like shooting a kid in the head in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, it takes on all sorts of forms. It does. And so, especially around infidelity and abandonment, the minute I'm triggered, I can't s- stop panicking. I, I, I'm up for hours with racing thoughts. I can't stop. Um, and my therapist was like, yeah, your, your limbic system is being you know, engage, which is like your fight or flight. So like you're perceiving danger that's not really there, but you're, as soon as your limbic system is engaged and you perceive danger, it's fight or flight. No logic is coming in. You're just full on defending yourself, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, get away from the pain in any way possible. So I can't have rational reactions around these things. Um, and so, I've started doing ED, EMDR. <laughs> yeah, e- EMDR. EMDR, yeah. And um, I've only had one session with it, so I can't... Is this generally a newer type of therapy? Or? It's been around for a while. Here, I'll read this. Um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing refers to interactive psychotherapy technique used to relive psychological stress. According to the theory behind the approach, traumatic and painful memories can cause post-traumatic stress when you don't process them completely. Um, So uh, let's see. 
history. So EMDR is the eight phase treatment method, history taking, client preparation, assessment, desensitization, installation, body scan, closure, and re-evaluation of treatment. Um, so it's pretty um, intensive. Yeah, it's very extensive. Um, people have seen huge um, like success with PTSD, people who struggle with PTSD. There's been a lot of success with it. Um, I'm just starting it, so I really like can't speak fully to its effectiveness. Um, but I do have one memory that I addressed that it was super interesting. Um, I guess so. The idea of EMDR is going through these, going to these traumatic memories sort of living through them in a safe way in your mind's eye. And then instead of being like, it's this awful thing that happened, like processing it, having closure with it and then not having it triggering you all the time, not having it be as recurring of a thought. Yeah, it triggers like, so my particular memory, the one that I started working on, um, like I mentioned, I have a lot of health anxiety that COVID has made the health anxiety horrendous. Like, I pet a cat from the outside. I think I have rabies, you know, stuff that's so bonkos. Yeah, it's like, gotten really irrational. So rational. Like I can't, like if I touch a surface that I think is dirty, I'm washing my hands all the time. Even though you know that it doesn't yeah. live on surface. Magical thinking, matter. everything. Yeah. Diagnosing myself with 10 different things, staying up all night. It's all of it. It's back and really, it's and, back and, 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 and more back and better than ever, baby. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when I was younger, uh, my dad went through a very intensive heart surgery. He's had multiple life threatening, you know, surgeries, all these things. So I have this memory of he went away to Chicago, um, to have this operation. He almost died. He got a heart transplant. It's a very long story, but I was away from my family. I was flown down there as an emergency thing. And then I was flown back to Vancouver where I'm from to wait for my parents to come home after he recovered. So I have this very poignant memory of like he was flown on like a meta jet or whatever back to Vancouver with my mom. And this was the first time I had seen my parents since this whole surgery, since everything. So it had been months. And uh, I got to the hospital and um, he was at the end of the hallway and my mom was in the middle of the hallway. And I remember going to see my mom and her seeming like really sad and the hospitals suck. Um, and then walking towards him and him being like grossly underweight. Like he's like 6'1", I want to say. And he was maybe 120 pounds, maybe. Wow. Like skeletal, not able to speak, basically like a vegetable. But he, his mind was functioning. But he, was, he looked like a, a monster. Like this was not a person this was like a and it was so it's a very frightening memory but with emdr i went through it's super interesting they do flashing lights and they kind of get you into this like hypnosis e type state and you oscillate between uh, uh then this is just this one that i did you oscillate between a, a joyful memory and the hard memory so you kind of like see the lights and then the the therapist guides you through like asking you questions about the joyful memory. Mine was like recording a really fun podcast. So I'm thinking about that memory. I'm really getting engulfed in it. Like 
What do the tables look like? What do the people look like? What were the feelings? What were you talking about? So you're kind of like safely living that joyful memory. You see the lights and then you move to the uh, painful memory and you're kind of doing a similar thing. Like I have a crazy recall of like the color of the floor, um, like what the, you know, glass doors looked like. What did the nurse station look like? All these things. Like you get a lot of recall of that event in a very like detailed way that I previously hadn't had. So you're kind of moving between the two memories and the therapist is asking you questions about both, but more so the painful memory. But a big takeaway I had from going through that particular memory was not so much like the goriness of it, I guess, or the tr- the scariness of it. I always knew about the frightening element of like seeing a parent that's sick and whatever, hospitals, all these things. But I realized the emotional narrative behind that, which is disappointment. So like when I was a kid, my dad was always sick. My parents were always sick. I was always like the person with the sick family and everyone looked at you and was sad for you, you know, there was like this otherness of it and and this sort of like when is this not going to be life you know when you're in hospitals all the time it's just like you're going back to the hospital and they're getting tests again and like especially when there's no clear end in sight and the person is just sick all the time like just permeates everything and it's just this kind of like gray malaise i think actually people got a really good understanding of it with COVID for the first time as a society I think we kind of had some empathy for those who live with chronic illness because we lived in a society that was steeped in illness all the time it was everywhere it was touching everything that we interacted with it's just like you feel like caged in by it like cornered and powerless you're like it's just never gonna fucking end with this shit so I remembered when we were traversing this memory what was so heartbreaking about this was that I thought it was over. Like I had this idea that like my parents were going to come back and my dad had like survived this operation and I was reuniting with them. And like this whole crazy nightmare was kind of like going to come to a, a an end soon. Like he's back in Vancouver. My mom's back. Our family's back together. He survived. And so he's going to be okay. And it's just going to be like a few more months of, you know, this hell, yeah, for lack of a better word. And then I remember getting there, seeing my mom, and, like, she looked so fucked up. You know when you're a kid and, like, adults are not even trying to put on airs about how fucked up they are because the situation's really bad? It was like that. Like, she looked sad. She looked yeah. really sad, and she looked drained, And I was like, oh, she's not okay. Like this, my mom's not okay at all. She's so sad. It's the same as it was. Like she's this husk who's like barely holding on. And like you want your mom. You don't want this like husk. And it's not her fault. But you're a kid. You're a kid. So I remember being like, oh, fuck. You know, this is not ending. And then, you know, all the smells of the hospital and the way it is and the gross floor and the food and just like, uh, like it was this sadness of like, 
oh, I'm stuck here. We're not leaving here. This is, we're not even close to leaving here. And then seeing my dad be so, I remember like a big part of it and I, all these feelings about it are not feelings I at all understood until this, going through this. Because also part of me is an adult, so I have a better understanding of like the adult feelings around this now. Um, but I also remember like seeing his eyes because he's all fucked up, you know, start, you know, so thin, can't walk or talk on his own, can't swallow in his own. He had a breathing, he had a tube that would like suck up his spit because he wasn't able to swallow. His muscles weren't developed. So like this is a person who's basically like dead on a level. They're alive, but they're not really living. And I remember looking into his eyes. And that's another thing that I cannot, I did not realize about this memory is that I looked into his eyes and that was still that person, right? Like I see the, the eyes are the, like the last thing where like that's a recognizable person to you. And I remember being like, how awful to be him, because that's him, right? In there, but he's in this body. So he's trapped too. And it was like to see a parent, to look into his eyes and to know, to make this like connection with him, this unspoken connection of like, here we are, and this is this, and you're alive, but like, this is fucked up. Like, my child brain was like, oh, he's trapped. He's trapped. Like, that's your father, but it's not really. It's this monster, and you're only able to access him through this point, and like, seeing the eyes and having like an understanding between the two of us to the severity of what was going on was even more claustrophobic. Like, the whole situation was just like, panic you know and that is traumatizing i thought because i thought it was going to be over and i'm like oh this isn't over at all this isn't even close to over like you're trapped he's trapped she's trapped no no one's helping us no (laughs) one's coming to help you know what i mean like it was this this memory previously was a lot of the way i i thought about it was yeah you saw a really fucked up thing which is true but you just saw it was like, oh yeah, that was fucked up. It was fucked up. But I was like, oh no. There's an emotional There's narrative. There's an emotional narrative here that I was this. not able to access whatsoever. Um and it is a version of abandonment because I don't have parents again. You know what I mean? Like I don't they're there, but they're barely there. They're barely holding on. Like him quite literally. Her I think she was actually I used to think seeing him was the worst part of that memory. It wasn't. It was seeing her because I was like, oh, I'm my mom back. Because forever he was always sick and unavailable and whatever. So I I was very close with my mom and I was like, oh, she's back. I have a, at least I have another um, partner in this scenario or someone to take care of me. A caregiver. But she was just a husk of a human being because of course she was. You know, but it was like, oh my God, yeah, oh, fuck. That's a lot. She's, she couldn't, you know, she couldn't even hide it. And like, how, how would she hide it? You know, it's, it's, I don't fault her for that, but. So associating that incredibly painful, uh, fucked up memory mm-hmm. with then oscillating between that and a joyful memory of podcasting and using the light therapy mm-hmm. has helped you 
sort of reinterpret and process that experience? Yeah. That's amazing. It's cool because um, I had no like conclusiveness towards the bad memory. There was only like that. That's a horrible memory. And I, I go, my brain used to go to that memory all the time. It would wander to it all the time. It would make me cry. You know, it's like haunted me. It, it's, it's, you know, and also it would pop in out of nowhere. Um, and I'd be like, oh, great. I'm trying to get a coffee. And I'm thinking about my monster dad. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, uh, yeah. It's disrupting. Um, and so, I was able to like be like, oh, this is why these, this is the emotional story behind this. This is why you felt so betrayed and so isolated and so lonely because you felt this before and then that happened. And I was able to really be like, of course you would feel that way. And you were right to feel that way. And also oscillating to the happy memory keeps, it's a safer, it feels like a safer way to, to sort of jump between the two and it's kind of nice in the sense of like, it's weird. So we we show so much with our bodies emotionally. Like, you know, when you're, when you're anxious, your throat tightens up or like your gut gets all fucked up. If things are not going well, your shoulders raise when you're like, there's all these involuntary body movements. That's why the body and the brain are so fucking connected. Um, so I would notice that like when I was talking about the positive memory, I would be very loose and fu- and then the negative memory, the throat, the shoulders, everything would like go up so quickly. Yeah. So I think oscillating between the two, you can't live in the negative memory. It's too much. Um, so I think the positive memory was like a nice break. It was also like a really interesting, it's like interesting. You're using your own body as like a weird experiment to be able to look at it having this like involuntary response when you're oscillating between the two it's just like nuts you're becoming conscious of what yeah. is usually unconscious i know i'm like look at oh my god what's going on with the shoulders like i it, it's nuts um so i think the being able to process and come to some sort of adult mature conclusions about things and, and having empathy for yourself in that situation and trying to like put it to bed in a sense is helpful because I think it then helps you stop going into fight or flight mode all the time. Like you're, you have processed the danger. You understand that the danger is real, but also you're not in danger anymore. Like I think that's, I feel as if I'm always in danger in some way and I'm not all the time. And so to like, to, to, to go through the dangerous situation and understand the nature of it and why you felt that way and that, you know, forgive yourself and understand what you were feeling at that time. And then to put it to rest is nice. It's huge. huge. I mean, if you're just processing it or quote unquote processing it through the fight or flight lens, you're not really processing it in any way. So it's going to keep coming back. It's going to be this unwanted recurring thought. It's like hell. Then it's the judgment that you put on that thought, which doesn't help anything because then you're fueling the fire. Uh, You're not giving yourself enough compassion or self care to acknowledge that. Yeah. The specifics of this are unique to me, but the phenomenon is not. It's not, it's very, it's very relieving to be like, Oh, this is, I have no choice in this that I'm running on this wheel because of course I would be. 
you know? Yeah. And that's really like just very calming to be like, okay, you're not weak because you keep having anxiety attacks about these things that aren't, you know, do you think your boyfriend is cheating on you because he didn't text you back for three hours? You know what I mean? It's not that it's because you're emotionally weak. It's that your fucking nervous system is lighting up. And once that shit starts going, very hard to de-escalate, you know? Yeah, no amount of quote-unquote strength right. is going it's not to about overcome that. that. It's not, it's about, not that. about that. So, like, I'm a very pragmatic person in a lot of ways. And so, like, I very much like the idea of pragmatism and mental health and tools and these things i mean that's the whole point is to give us health you know so it's like physical therapy it's like let's exercise the muscle in a different way let's do let's create i mean the idea behind it is that you're creating new neuro pathways and again i'm not a neurologist i'm not a doctor literally just started this who knows how my journey will be with it but like a metaphor that my doctor said that was was hugely helpful for me is that neuropathways in your brain are like uh, water traveling in a path. So like the more water travels down the same path over and over again, the more it becomes like a ravine or a crevice or whatever, the more deeply entrenched it becomes. So if you keep following the same, going to fight or flight and having the same you know, neurological reaction, you're just deepening, you're like digging your heels into that reaction. So trying to reprocess is literally trying to like rewire the pathway so that you don't fall back into that same thing. I mean, it's fascinating to me. It is fascinating. It sounds, it sounds worthwhile. Yeah. And it it just, uh, it seems like a more, like a, a more involved version of, of mindfulness. Yeah, it is. I mean, the brain's fucking nuts. Yeah. If we can truly like, rewire in this way then that's amazing to me like i want to live in a world that that's how this works so like i'm gonna pursue it there's a lot of studies that show it's success there's also you know skeptics towards it but i mean yes please yeah that sounds good yeah and i'm so glad we got to talk about that because i didn't know much about it at all emdr emdr yeah 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 a lot of people who are abuse victims uh, pursue it too, you know, physical, emotional. Yeah. Psychos. If you find that interesting, look into uh, EMDR. And I think that was a great explanation of it. And I think that, uh, you opening up about so many things. I mean, you guys, there is a podcast episode of take your pill psychopath where Andrea and I compare and contrast bipolar one and bipolar two. And it is one of the most popular episodes. Oh really? It really is. Nice. And I suggest that you check it out. But guess what? We got all sorts of different content yeah. out of Andrea today. Ooh, my mental illness is contains multitudes. Oh, it is multifaceted indeed, dude. Oh, I hate it. You're doing so good, though. You're doing so good. <laughs> I'm so fucking proud of you. Thank you. You have a lot of joy in your life, a lot of happiness. You laugh a lot. I appreciate you know, that. You're very talented. As do you, my friend. I, I know, I know. Um, so what I want to say is, is there any last thoughts that you'd like to throw out there? And then we can uh, wrap up and we can let people know where they can find you. I mean, you said a lot. You've thank you. Lot. I can run my goddamn mouth for hours. You're, it's good podcasting. You oh. give good podcasts. Oh, thank you. I'm you glad. know that you do. This I'm, has been a delight. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you think that. Um, I love talking to you always. So um, final thoughts. Um, oh God. Yeah. 
I don't know. It's fucking hard out there, really. That's like all I really have to say when it comes down to this stuff is that like it's really hard. And if you feel like it's hard and you feel defeated and it feels impossible, just know that like every one feels a version of that. Um, and like having people to talk to is huge. So I think that's a big step, you know, to take that step because you're not by yourself. Every crazy quote unquote thought that you've had, someone has had another version of, um, and being open and transparent is, is the, you know, is the best way you'll be happier with that than hiding in the shadows for sure. Yeah, I agree. And trying to get involved in some sort of sense of community is helpful. Huge. You know? Yeah. Um, dare I say we're, we're creating a sense of community here. Yeah. uh, Take your pills psychopath. So I appreciate you psychos listening. Andrea, where can people follow you and find your work? Follow me at Andrea Comedy 69 on Instagram. Ooh la la. Risky sexual behavior, one of the hallmarks of bipolar disorder. So true. Wah, 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 wah. Um, so I, you know, I post my comedy on there and my thirst traps, my memes, I have fun on there. Uh, and then also I have a podcast, which John was just a returning guest on. Great podcast. Um, I don't know if that'll be out yet, but keep your eye on the hot mess comedy hour. Uh, that is my show that I host with Emily Lupin. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, give me a shout out, uh, cash app me, Andrea comedy, give me 20 bucks. Why not? Why not? Throw her some cash, y'all. Don't feed your baby. Give me money. Yeah. Baby formula is hard to find anywhere. <laughs> I know. That was dark. Um, yeah. yeah and uh, psychos, if you uh, if you join the uh, Take Your Pill Psychopath Patreon, you get a second bonus episode. So uh, that's uh, patreon.com slash jfod. Also, if you haven't joined my newsletter yet, please do at jfodnews.com. And yeah, and check out Andrea's podcast, uh, The Hot Mess Comedy Hour. With uh, uh, She hosts that along with Emily Lubin, and it's a great podcast. It's hilarious. It's insightful. It's all the things you want to hear in a pod. In a pod. uh, Do that. So yeah, guys, this has been another episode of Take Your Pills, Psychopath, the comedy podcast that exploits mental illness for personal profit. What? Trademark. I'm John F. O'Donnell with Andrea Allen. Andrea, thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me.